All right, I don't want to really. Well, at eleven hundred dollars a share, it's like a, it's like one thing. At seven hundred dollars a share, it's okay. another. Uh, I'm I'm just gonna. Yeah, let's riff. Let's riff. Hey, it's May. It's Glop Culture. I'm John Podhoritz. With me, as always, in Washington, Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Hello. And somewhere on an island in the sun, Rob Long. Hi, Rob. Hi there. How's it going? That's pretty. Not as not as not as good as you. Well, not as relaxed and it's hot as you. Nice. That's good. It's supposed to be uh, supposed to end up in the 90s uh, this weekend in on the East Coast. So I guess we're all we're all going to be hot. Um, Hey, guys. So I have this question I want to ask you. Uh, So suddenly we even talked a little bit this suddenly the bloom is off the rose on streaming streaming the bloom is off the rose <laughs> right right okay so i looked up something today about netflix which is now you know in trouble it's going to be this blah 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 so netflix which does have a ridiculous valuation nonetheless uh grossed 30 billion dollars in revenue right. in 2021 that's more than all three of our enterprises combined <laughs> quite true um in what way shape or form are we to look at a company with revenues of 30 billion dollars and say well this this is that's that's it buddy that's the end of everything and you know let's all flee to safety from the company that actually earns 30 billion dollars doesn't 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 net 30 billion but it earns 30 right. billion dollars while Disney itself now has over 100 million subscribers, and I don't know what HBO Max has, but a lot. And so how is this a bad business? Suddenly having everybody thought for years this was the future of everything. It takes one bad news story well, for everyone no, to go absolutely no, bananas. Here's why. Because everyone's stupid. That's it's what I was looking for. Everybody, first of all, streaming isn't over. It, it's all a fa- all a factor of valuation, how you pay for it. Netflix was in a death race because they don't have a library, and they had licensed library content that grew that business. The number one shows on Netflix were reruns from broadcast, well, some from old line broadcast, right? Um, and so they were in a death race. So they needed their valuation up and they were b- borrowing money and they have like, you know, they, oh, they have giant bond issues and the stock valuation is very important. It has lost 70% of its value. It doesn't mean the company's not good. It just means that everyone was stupid and thought that the party would never end. And now sometimes when the party ends, you got to come up with a new story. And the new story could be streaming is a mature business. It's not going to, you know, it isn't a 50, 100x over earnings business. Um, it's mature. It, none of these companies, the, the, the great film business, media companies, whatever people call them, you know, for the first 60 years of show business, they, they were small and they didn't make a lot of money. And they were kind of like, it was like four executives maybe. And they had big years and down years and people were buying and selling them. They, these were not, these are not terrific places for you to park your money um, for your retirement plan. So that's the only answer. It's a fun business, a great business, but making 30 billion, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like the, the, it's all about the, what your expectations are right. for one share of that company. And your expectations have been lowered and made more realistic. That's all. 
So, so ju yeah. I, I, just to answer the question briefly, I just yeah. want to toot my own horn, which is that two years ago, a year ago, six months ago, we again and again and again and again on this podcast talked about how movie theaters are doomed. No one's going to go back to movies, yada, yada, yada. Streaming's going to win everything. And I was always, I always took the position of, I don't know, but meh. I don't think movie theaters mm -hmm. are doomed. I don't think streaming is doomed for the reasons that you lay out. Like, will there be consolidation? Sure. There's always consolidation when there's overdevelopment and stuff. And like the, the you know, CompuServe goes away. That didn't mean it was the end of the, you know, internet or chat or whatever. AOL instant messenger is gone. All that. These things happen. But like, there's definitely a habit. The, the habit has been formed in the marketplace to watch crap on tablets, computers, and on streaming devices. And that's not going away. You know, will Peacock survive it? I don't know. But like, will Netflix survive it? I don't know. But like the right. function of, you know, it's like some cities have public garbage collection. Some have private garbage collection. You know, the fact is that people always will want to have their garbage collected. And they'll people end up always want garbage. One way or another. And right. people also want to watch garbage. And so there's a market. So It'll here's a okay. question about whether it's garbage or not. So I've just watched all six episodes of this Paramount Plus series, The Offer, which is about the making of The Godfather. Is it any good? Okay. So it's it's crap. And particularly if you know the story of The Godfather and the actual making of The Godfather, it's highly romanticized and kind of fake, uh, mm -hmm. far more stress given to how much how large a role the mafia played in the making of the movie, which is an interesting sidelight of the whole crazy making of that movie, but nonetheless, but it's a pot boiler. And I really, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. There are a couple of fantastic performances, particularly Dan Fogler who plays Coppola and um, uh, Matthew Good, the English actor who plays Robert Evans in an uncanny, truly uncanny performance. But here's here's the point. So it's about Paramount. It's about it's basically about the studio Paramount, which was in the 1960s sold off to Gulf and Western. And this guy sold off to this crazy Austrian Jew right. named Charlie Bludorn. And at the time in the late 60s, Charlie Bludorn buys Paramount for a song and a garage company called Kinney buys Warner Brothers for a song. Mostly what the studios are doing in the late 60s is selling off their real estate in Los Angeles, getting rid of their right. lots right. to build Century City, which is what Fox, the Fox lot was. And this is when the business was actually crappy. Like this is when you actually well, had a real reason to think that the movie business, as it had been previously constituted, was kind of screeching to a weird halt. And then it took this wild left turn. These small movies started making hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. And then Paramount makes two movies, Love Story and The Godfather. And The Godfather is the single most important movie ever made because The Godfather is actually not Star Wars, not Jaws, is the first blockbuster. It is the first. Right. Well, so, wait, wait, so what is your makes, what's your. Yeah. OK, so what's the what's your point for this this my, my, show? My I have no point. My point okay. is <laughs> my point is you should watch the offer if you like to watch a good pot boiler, get get the and, and, and enjoy something. But that's not my my point is like when people talk about show business and about business, there's constantly this weird apocalyptic thing where 
things aren't quite going the way that they were before. And so everything is ending. But in fact, Netflix makes $30 billion. Doctor Strange is going to make $800 million, right? Um, God knows what uh, what well, top right, but that's is. exactly okay. what Netflix is saying, right? right. Netflix is the, the story that Netflix is, is telling people of the investors is the business is great. We need to cut costs. We need to we need right. to get our margins fatter because the um, the world is just more competitive, right? They don't right. have pricing power, so that's that. But that is kind yeah. of the story. I mean, everyone has this fantasy version, which is so dumb about the blockbusters that happened. It was what because the cowboy they, they they let these auteurs do these great movies, and that has nothing to do with it. The movie business was collapsing in the early '60s because the theaters were downtown. And they were too far to go. And people, people, people in Hollywood said, oh, well, obviously TV is killing the movies. But that's not really true. What killed the movies was for then was that the theaters were downtown still. And it was going to uh, dirty. And everybody had moved park, to the suburbs. And everybody moved to the suburbs. When they moved the screens closer to the customer, right. then they had blockbusters. But here's, here's, here's where I'm going with this. There are bubbles. There are ridiculous, absurd bubbles and spending sprees and VC fantasies all the time, right? I mean, most of internet publishing, not the dispatch, most of publishing, uh, you know, the Vox valuation, the BuzzFeed valuation, all that was insane, overthink, fantasy, excessive enthusiasm, all of that, right? All of which was, you could tell, because they really talked about how much money they made. They only talked about how much money they raised. But here we have a business that's real. Show business is real. Like streaming is real. Movie theaters and the, uh, you know, and movies right. were, were hurt and damaged by the pandemic. But we're making a cool 11 billion a year at the theaters. And they'll go back to making 11 billion either this year or next, depending on how much comes out well, i mean that's no that's not i mean the the uh, box office participation and viewership went down not just for the pandemic right. but over time right because they're you know just there's still 24 hours in the day you you know that but yeah. they and there's a the lot prices. of competition there's a lot of competition they did okay yeah. i mean uh, the show the, the entertainment business is usually it's a, it's a group of locusts terrified always trying to find a new source of money so in the 50s, that was television. And then the 60s, it was like, you know, um, more. What was the name? Uh, uh, Steve um, Ross. Guy who built Warner Brothers. Steve Ross. Ross. Like other ancillary business, Gulf and Western, these other Transamerica, these other strange businesses would get in. And then Coca-Cola owned Columbia Pictures and they, they got out. And then suddenly, 10 years later, people discovered, well, wait a minute. There's a thing called, the, there's a thing called cable. And cable has this incredibly, incredibly fat, regular, planable earnings. Cable is fantastic because people just give you money every every month and they charge your credit card automatically. So then, you know, there was an interest in like making sure that your cable company and your movie studio were together in some way. So they're always looking for new sources of money. So streaming is attractive because it's, you, you, could, you don't need a cable company now. You can just stream directly to the consumer and they'll just give you their credit card number. Eventually, these things are all going to shift down or, 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 or kill themselves or, you know, like rats in a coffee can, go, not nowhere to go but at each other. But the, the entertainment business itself is kind of an, it's a, it's an idea. It isn't necessarily a, 
set of functions and a set of in- financial institutions. Yeah. So like you guys have probably heard me tell this before, but like my father-in-law, this really impressive immigrant from uh, then Czechoslovakia, um, who was a self-made man, uh, became quite prosperous owning grocery stores and other sort of liquor stores and hardware stores and that kind of thing. Whenever his kids would ha- hatch some sort of fanciful idea about what kind of career they were going to go into, the first question my father-in-law would ask is, yeah, but can you eat it? And his point was, if you go into a business that satisfies a basic human need, you're always going to have business, right? It doesn't mean you're not right. going to have to innovate. It doesn't mean blah, blah, blah. But this is a reliable business, right? It's sort of like why Jewish mothers want their kids to be doctors. It's like everyone's always going to need a doctor. Now, sometimes the way you get compensated is worse than other times and all the rest. We've just spent the last 15 years getting our panties in a bunch about how everybody can't stop looking at screens, right? The idea that people are all of a sudden going to stop looking at screens because the right. top, the people at the top of the vertical part of the industry are, are shuffling the deck chairs on their business models yeah, nobody cares. is ridiculous because at the end of the day, people are going to watch stuff and, um, and there's going to be a market for it. And as long as there's a market for something, it's like I had a friend in high school who was a big pothead. And I told him that I had heard this rumor, this urban legend, that this the little strips on the inside of banana peels, um, if you dried them out, you could smoke them and would get you high. Oh, sure. And he was like, yeah, the thing is, if it was a good high, people would be selling dime bags of banana peel strips <laughs> right. on the corner. Right. There's right. a reason why. You know? Right. <laughs> and so like I, I like I, I, you guys are much more addicted to like industry gossip and failure and business models and all this stuff than well, I am. To be fair, that is literally is my business. And I, it's I literally and it's yeah. literally my wife's business. So no, no, no I get so that. We, look, we like, have like, we we have personal involvement. And right, my business partner, Steve Hayes, is like really fascinated in in the bells and whistles and the intricacies of the media world. <sighs> I just I cannot I cannot muster the fascination with it. I mean, I like good stories about people saying stupid yeah. things or are stripping someone they're not supposed to be yeah, stripping or whatever. That's, that's all great. But like eh. I went uh, I had a meeting once at NBC and I went in and it was one of those meetings where um, they hadn't it was in the morning and they hadn't cleared up the the guy running the network at the his coffee table still had the evening before his presentation booklet on it um which was uh, i guess a branding company had been giving them a presentation about the nbc brand insider but inclusive and all these giant you know circles and things and people and what people thought about stuff and how people thought about what the word insider and inclusive meant and what 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 musty tv must have felt like back then must when it was musty tv and it was just the most insanely hilarious document that I made fun of for the first 20 minutes of the meeting. I just look, looked at it like, this is crazy. Like, luckily I did was, I did it in a nice enough way that they bought the show. But the, the idea that somebody really thought at the time that your, your customer, the, the viewer had this idea about the NBC brand that was different from the ABC brand. And they would sit around their kitchen table and say, I, I'm in the mood for a, an ABC kind of branded entertainment uh, object today because that because I'm feeling uh, family uh, new new fa- new fa- new definition of family, um, but if I felt more 
insider and inclusive and uh, um, supported by my friends, I might want to go watch it. And nobody ever thought that, but they just kind of convinced themselves that there was a way if they could just figure out what the brand was, they wouldn't have to do the hard work anymore, which was you kind of, you know, you listen to a story, you watch it, read a script, you watch a pilot and you kind of make a, make a, make a gut decision, which of course is what's going to happen at Netflix. Because everything okay, reverts to that. Can They're I float a Netflix-related question yes. theory for yes. you guys? So you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, all those awesome videos of like wild boars coming into central Rome and, oh, and, yeah. and you know, lions sleeping in the middle of the road in Africa. And everyone talked about how nature is healing. Well, in the last week or so, uh, Netflix's CEO sent a letter to all the staff saying, yeah, if you can't handle politically controversial stuff that you don't approve of, you should find another job. And then this week, just today or yesterday, Netflix announced, it was reported in Variety, that they are canceling in the womb, as it were, in production, Ibram Kendi's anti-racist baby cartoon. And so my question for you guys is, is nature healing? Is, <laughs> is, there, is this long, awful experiment with really stupid, no. progressive, glyphosate no. coordination of everything going away? And companies are like, hey, we actually make money when we give people products that they want and a bunch of crybabies on staff need to suck it up. Should I not take some hope out of this? You could, I guess. I, I would say this, that I the, the stuff that I get now, I mean, I got a whole bunch of it last uh, last past month on what they call the, the, the new mandates, new directives from various you know places. And one of the consistent threads and <laughs> hilariously described uh, is that they're interested in um, uh, comedies that are, and then they had a whole bunch of words, but comedies that are, um, uh, uh, designed to be celebrated with laughter. <laughs> and that was one of the phrases designed to be celebrated with laughter, meaning funny. Right. Like just funny. But they can't they don't know how to say that. They, don't, they can't say, oh, we just want some funny stuff. That instead, they're like, we're, we're looking more for for celebrations with laughter. We're looking for that's, that's, that's the we're only thing for they have food now. products that can be masticated in a pleasurable yes. way. Exactly right. Right. <laughs> but you're, none but dare call it feel tasty. good in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. You are right, though, that something is healing, by which I mean, uh, there was kind of like a perfect storm, obviously, over the last two years in terms of leftists and liberals and wokeness and the woke people being able to bully the liberals into following the mandates of the left because the liberals have no antibodies against that and they are powerless to fight the idea that they must fall in line behind the revolutionaries and all that. And um, a lot of people made big mistakes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Netflix didn't make the mistake, right? It didn't cancel... Chappelle but I think it saw Disney and Disney's yeah. new CEO who was himself bullied into making a colossal mistake a completely unforced error getting himself into this political war in Florida that he knew perfectly well he shouldn't get into but the idea was he needed to show talent in Hollywood that he was their friend because otherwise they wouldn't want to work there and they would go somewhere else and he right. got in those those kinds of conversations it's like 
really? People aren't going to want to work for Disney. Disney is the only yeah. studio that is working. That Disney is making. Disney was making. What did it make? Fifty yeah. percent of all the gross receipts for the for motion pictures Giant. It were, yeah. were were coming from Disney. Who wouldn't want to work? For, no, well, I'm not I mean, work also, like, what part I'm going to work the... for A24 because they'll yeah. pay me $100,000 as opposed to Disney, which will pay me a million dollars. Well, I remember, like, once I had a meeting with some, I met where I set up a little lunch with somebody who wanted to invest in show business. And we had a mutual friend. This guy had a lot of money and he wanted to invest. And he kept saying, well, I want to do little indie movies and stuff. And, but I don't think anyone's going to really want to um, involve me because I don't know anybody. I'm not connected. And I was like, well, <laughs> you, you have money. Everyone here wants money and you have money. So all you really need to do is to just get yourself an office and an assistant and then call up six people in town and tell them that you have money and how much money you have. And you will be in the center of all the possible. You will be a stop on everybody's trip. Nobody cares. I mean, if you have money, that's what I, I need your money. That is the that is the mantra that goes through the entertainment business. And I think as long as you have it, yeah. it, you're fine. And and I would just say the the, the yeah, all of these things disappear so quickly, and and fade away so quickly that the, there's that old uh, George Schultz when he took over when he was Secretary of State. Apparently, it's apocryphal. I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, he when the politically appointed ambassadors would come in before they would take a take a trip, and they'd meet you know for a photo op with the Secretary of State, and he would always have a big map of the world on his wall and he'd say okay uh point out your country and they'd always go and point out the country like you know whatever country they're in and he always said no 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 no. this is your country meaning <laughs> the united, united states. states and i feel like that sometimes is what happens in show business is like a, but, but who's your audience and then yeah. they naturally say well it's the creative community and it's like no 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 your audience is out there and that's only think about that the creative community well they will forgive you literally anything or not for, for money right or, or not. not but or i mean not. who are they in other words like we're 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 in, a world, anyway. we're in a world in which there are close to 600 television shows being made every year the idea that um disney is going to suffer yeah. because people are going to not want to work at disney was a kind of mania or madness that this guy Chapek got himself in the middle of and made a terrible mistake. That's what I'm saying. So Netflix looked at Chapek, looked at the month of his travails and said, you know, maybe we should double down on the idea that what we're going to do is try to make hits and money. And if you don't like how we do that, because we're probably going to have to do things that are offensive to this woke body of right. opinion right. within us, Go somewhere else. This is a very big world and you can get an, it's, uh, there's no labor shortage. Everyone can get a new job. Go get a new job or leave us alone. And it was kind of like a gimme. It's an interesting message that they sent. And I think um, it is a healing. I think there yeah. there is something yeah. there. So this it's is sort of like what CNN. It's sort of so like what your the answer. new people at CNN are doing. Yeah. So, uh, right. There's your answer. It is healing. We hope. Yes. Yeah. I, so I, this raises something I'm also generally fascinated in i wrote about a version of this a take on this about a month ago so i do think there are professions when you say that you know the creative community is your audience kind of thing right there are professions 
where the people in the profession are care more about their peers, other elites in the profession, than they actually care about the end user. I think the best example of this is probably architecture, where architects make what I think are largely hideous buildings to get praise from Architectural Digest and other architects, rather than like the guy walking down the street or the guy renting a, an office in an apartment in a in an office building. Other examples are there are certain chefs, not everybody in the food industry, but you know, like the James Beard people who I'm generally, you know, I, I care about James Beard because I care mm -hmm. about the food stuff. They announced, I don't know, about a year ago, six months ago, that they are going to now factor in uh, social justice concerns and inclusion into scores for who's the best chef or what's, mm -hmm. what's the best restaurant, which makes me very, very angry. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of Michael Lind for reasons we don't need to yeah. do, uh, get into on this, but he wrote a very good piece not long ago where he was writing that one of the problems that the the, the left has gotten itself into is thanks to like the Ford Foundation and all and that sort of that that the sort of David Shore Ivy League um, super woke elite. They're all doing stuff for approval from each other, like right. the blue check mark, very online left only cares about what each other thinks. And they direct the Democratic Party not towards the actual I mean, this is very Rui to share a point not towards the actual interests of Democratic voters or the median voter, right. but what gets approval at MSNBC and the New York Times op-ed page. And it's this echo chamber kind of problem. Right. And I think that like, it's a really difficult problem to solve. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated as a part of like elite theory, but like figuring out ways to smash these unofficial cultural monopolies so that the people running them actually once again care about the end users of the product and right. not the critics or the reviewers. And like academia is the best example of that. The professors, the administrators, they all care about what everybody in their bubble thinks more or too much right. rather than like the betterment of like the educational system. Well, that so that is the hardest not to crack because the of the physical plant problem of the universities, right? Creating yeah. competitive universities is a huge problem because starting a new one costs $5 billion or something right. like it's not something you can do organically, but everything you mentioned, particularly like the James Beard awards and stuff like that, that's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. Someone else is going to start the Jonah Goldberg awards for right, food. Right, and you know what? Right. They're not going to factor in social right. justice. They're just going to say who makes the best hamburger and right. then people are going to listen, are going to be more interested in what the Jonah Goldberg Award says than the James right. Beard and, Award. Right. That is like a, a given, and it opens up a gigantic market, the way Substack opened up a gigantic market opportunity for somebody like Barry Weiss or people like that, because they're like, okay, the cost of entry is zero. These people are being stupid. They basically can mow down a lot of conventional media at very low cost. Um, as I say, it's harder if you have to have a giant institution right. come in and, and fill fill the gap. Well, and right? the other major problem, which I've been making this point for 20 years, was like because there was this whole boomlet back when you were running the um, Weekly Standard. You guys ran some pieces on this. I think Mark Judge did one. You know, this whole idea of creating an alternative conservative culture. Yeah. And, you know, Irvin Crystal's point always was who are you going to get to like staff it? Yeah. Um, but like my point was at the end of the day, the average 
well, well-to-do heart surgeon or orthodontist or car dealership owner in New Rochelle or in Shaker Heights may be totally on our side on the politics, but they want their kid to go to Harvard because Harvard has a reputation as a brand right. value right. that is just simply going to be superior than some new university. Right. So there's this also just like you can't make new old friends. You can't create new old institutions. Right. And the brand value of some of those institutions is just so huge that they can get away with really doing terrible things without worrying about screwing up. And the customer is subsidized. I mean, the difference between Netflix and Harvard is that Netflix. Right. Got a wake up call with a couple of bad quarters and probably a third bad quarter and really super bad um, three year, you know, uh, subscribers, three years plus are, are they're the ones now. Um, uh, unsubscribing to Netflix, that is a dangerous signal because the idea was always that if I have you for three years, I have you forever. Um, and that's turned out right. to be not true. So they, if, if nature is healing and they are deciding, well, hell, we have to put on stuff that actually people find destination worthy and maybe it's going to be a little noisy. Maybe there's going to be some trouble, but we have to be the place to do that. It's because the customer is no longer kind of subsidizing them on, on, on sleepwalking with like a monthly fee. And nor, nor is Wall Street. Yeah, nor, is Wall, nor Street. is Wall Street. In other words, now it's like the rubber meets the road. We're no longer simply floating you. Show us where, you know, your stock price is now down 60%. It'll go up again if you do right. what's necessary to straighten out your business and get, you know, we, we, we were also betting on the come. You had this all to yourself. And they, so their motivation for self-correction is really, really not really, going to really be high, high whereas at, at a university because their right? customer is subsidized. Right. So like the, the federal government has already subsidized right. this crazy, crazy tuition at these schools yeah. that is absolutely untethered to inflation. Um, so that's, well, they're, right. they're just not price sensitive. They're not customer sensitive. Why would they change? All right. Well, you know, sensitive. it's a pain in the back. And therefore, the people who have this pain in the back, you know what they need? They need the X chair. You know what I'm talking about? Because the first moment I sat in it, my body immediately said, so this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like. And that could be true for everybody at Netflix who is now dealing with the problems that we are talking about now. They probably don't look forward to sitting in their office chair, but they will. If they get the X chair, can their current office chair give them a massage while they're working? The X chair can. Can the current chair heat up or cool down? X chair can. It's all in the LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you feel the customized supportive X chairs patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL, you'll never be happy in the other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all reasons to love the X chair. You can try it for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. I promise. So go to X chair glop. Dot com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, GLOP.com, or call 1 844 4XTR for $100 off your order. XTR has that 30 day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. XChairGlop.com. And we thank the X Chair for sponsoring the Glop podcast. And let me also add something about our favorite underwear. We're talking about the Tommy John hammock pouch underwear. The right pair of underwear puts all your eggs in one basket and keeps them there. When you're wearing Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better with dozens of comfort innovations. Once you've tried Tommy John underwear, you're never going back. We're talking about an Airmesh interior hammock, moisture wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands. The legs never ride up. Tommy John underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. 
Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics, fanatics that call Tommy John's hammock pouch quite, quote, one of life's greatest inventions with over 17 million pairs sold. Men across America love their Tommy John underwear. Shipping and returns are free because every pair is backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear. It's free guarantee. It's Tommy John's anniversary month. So whether you're trying them for the first time or a longtime fan, get 25% off site-wide right now at tommyjohn.com slash glop. Go to tommyjohn.com slash glop today for 25% off tommyjohn.com slash glop. See site for details. And we thank Tommy John for sponsoring the glop podcast. All right. What else should we, uh, what else should we, so I, have, I have another question for you guys. Oh, wow. Okay. So I haven't, obviously I don't think it's out yet. I saw some promotion for it. There's some chatter on Twitter about it. Judd Apatow has some documentary about George Carlin coming out. Yeah. Now I like George Carlin. I got to say the clips I've seen really make him seem like anti-American. It's bad in that sense. It's like, you know, the American dream, they call it the American dream because you have to be asleep to see it and this kind of stuff. And um, I guess the question I have is, do we think that George Carlin would work today or is he kind of dated? Because there's a lot of his stuff. I mean, like like the football versus baseball stuff is fantastic. There are lots of bits. The seven word stuff, you know, were great, all that. But I kind of feel like. I don't know, it's 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 not as outdated as Lenny Bruce, who I yeah. never thought got deserved the, the praise he got. But it, it does kind of feel kind of cranky old man yelling at clouds. Some of it. Am I, am well, I just he felt that wrong? way, too, near the end of his career. He had a couple pe- parts of his act that um, I think almost just simply called the rant. And it was like a, the second part of his act was the rant. And he would just talk for 20 minutes. And there were, were, were kind of no punchlines there. And I think he did it mm-hmm. for a year. And, and then he realized he made a terrible error that like nobody wanted that. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think that's I mean, I think he has he spoke about that before he died. I mean, it, he's a, he, to me, he's I mean, he's really good, but he's he's much more of like a of a of an historical cultural artifact. You know, the interesting thing is to watch yeah. the young George Carlin in a suit on the Ed Sullivan show. Good evening. Once again, the big hand is on the five. The little hand is on the six. And it's time for the 11 o'clock report. <laughs> First of all, the headlines, Russia and the United States are at war. Missiles have been fired by both sides. Moscow, New York, and London are in flames. Details on these and other stories in just a moment. <laughs> and then, you know, you just, like, like the Beatles, you know, you fast forward to suddenly he's in you know, being a full beard hippie, hippie comedian. Um, but he, all those guys, I mean, I don't know what he would think about certainly today, but I think a lot of these comedians would realize that they, they would have no career today. They're See, Carlin, Carlin interests me because, I mean, I, I can barely mention this name, but if you listen to a Woody Allen stand-up routine now, it is timeless and hilarious because Allen had this, right. you know, basically essentially literary, spoofy, you know, off-kilter perspective that remains fresh. It so happens. Did you whistle at me? Not long ago, I sold the memoirs of my love life to Parker Brothers, and they're going to make it into a game. Guys like Carlin were playing off. He was the he was the transitional figure from the middle class 
you know, Alan King guy talking about your yeah. wife. Yeah, but it's talking about your wife and what it's like to drive in traffic and the suburbs and, you know, what's going on with broads today. And, you know, I had a terrible bowling score yesterday and he, he was this was the idea that it was time for comedy to ratchet down in age and start appealing to people in their teens and 20s. And, you know, that was him. That was Albert Brooks. That was prior. Uh, and, you know, ultimately it was Saturday Night Live and the comedy that emerged from that, all of which were no longer aimed at the kind of adult baby boom, you know, parents right. of the baby boom, but uh, at the baby boom. And um, it was very interesting because it changed comedy. It had its own fret, but it's very time. And yet it's like being yeah. a hippie comedian. He, I was going to say that's but yet yeah. I think the hippie comedians material, which I think is very funny to me, is much more time bound than watching old Rodney Dangerfield routines, which were the so incredibly right. retro, right. even when he was at his height, they were like, my God, this guy's from the right. beyond, from the from the deep past. But there was a consistency to those jokes and to his personality that made him incredibly funny. Rodney Dangerfield was incredibly funny. He would go on Carson and Letterman even and just kill for yeah. 11 minutes, kill with yeah. material that was good. He, he could have done in at the stork Copacabana in 1957. Right. I tell you, I mean, his wise guys. Well, I checked in a hotel. I asked the bellhop to handle my bag. He started to feel up my wife. (laughs) I said to him, I said, hey, buddy, who told you you could play around my wife? He said, everybody. Because it wasn't, it was just about the reversals, right? It was always the, you know, it was all the Funny. joke was the jokes yeah. on me. I'm the loser. You know, I'm I, <laughs> I I'm the loser and everybody right. treats me like that. I and I get no respect yeah. and all of that. And there's no there's not there's nothing time bound about that. But if you listen to Carlin talking about the words you can't say on TV or talking about how we're also materialistic, we have too much stuff. You have well, to find a place to can, put can your I, stuff Then you yeah. got to get rid of your stuff so you can get more stuff. And it has this quality of like conversations that you have with old hippies, yeah. which mm-hmm. is like, OK, enough already. Please stop with your old hippie them like I, I you know. Well, you know, here's the word. It's, it's not like, amusing. It's like I remember anymore. talking to an old hippie once. You said, like, I'm really, really concerned about the ecology. It's like the ecology. <laughs> I had heard that a lot. Yeah, yeah the, we, we say the environment now, but I, I understand what you're saying. The the um yeah. the also the other thing about uh, uh, prior was that his target was the establishment, the kind of black and white suit guys, the madmen, you know, yeah. early seasons, those guys, the uptight ones, the ones who were like, you do the right thing, and we are uh, we enforce the speech codes on television. And now, though, I just think the establishment is completely different. I mean, the establishment is mostly people who probably agree with George Carlin in a lot of ways. So or agreed with him anyway. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I, fi- I, I find myself uninterested in that documentary, although, you know, Apatow made a really, really good documentary about Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling's mm-hmm. an interesting example of just a very original yeah. comic. Mind. He had a very original perspective on things as did you know richard lewis said there was a certain type there that were sort of building on right. the low self-esteem model of 
Rodney Dangerfield, as opposed to the fearless truth telling of George Carlin, you know, which was George Carlin is giving you a sermon of a sort. So he's very much in the line of, you know, Colbert or the or these, you know, late night leftist yammerers in your face about what's wrong with American society. And in the case of the really great comedians, it seems to me, they always just turn the hose on yeah, themselves. Right. Well, I, 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 I will share. Yeah. Two. So they're not punching down. They're punching themselves in yeah. the face. And we're watching I will it share two anecdotes. One of a Gary Shandling anecdote. Uh, uh, he's quiet. He's a quiet person. And um, but hilarious. And I was at a party once and he was there. And I don't know if this is ever part of his act or not. But we were sort of just, it was like a bunch of people. Well, it wasn't even a big party. It was like maybe there's a dozen people there. And we're kind of all talking about different things and some different groups of people. And then at one point, you know how like in a party, the conversation becomes a general conversation. And it's and this is a long time, this is a long enough ago that people are still talking about all that stupid spam junk ma- email they would get. And uh, Shanley said, I know, I know, I don't know how to stop it either. Like it's, Cause I love my computer. I love email, but I just, I just don't know how to get rid of all. I mean, sharing spam filter stuff. And I just don't know how to get rid of it. I just hate it. I mean, if I got one more email promising to, you know, give me a bigger penis, I'm going to go broke. (laughs) 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 Kill. It was a killer joke. It was like, and I don't, and you know, it's fun. So, I mean, we've all had the experience. I think if you know, you know, genuinely funny comedians or people who like are, are who turn it on like crazy. Um, then they're incredibly boring off stage. Like they, well, it's right. all it's, they leave it all. They develop material. They write it's material, the but they are they are dull as dishwater right. off stage. So my favorite friendship in all of comedy is Jack Benny and George Burns. So George Burns, until he got old, George Burns was a straight man. He was Gracie Allen's straight man, his wife, Gracie Allen's straight man. And Jack Benny was the funniest person in in show business. Jack Benny's character, his routines, what he wrote, his radio show, how he performed, he was just dazzlingly funny. He's dazzlingly funny today. Don just happened to mention that he saw my family album and that I was a beautiful child. You beautiful? Yes, I was. Not only that, I developed very quickly. When I was only three months old, I had four lovely teeth. Well, you're right back where you started from. (laughs) Now, listen, Mary, I have a full set of teeth right now. And with the exception of a little argument I had with a cab driver in Toledo, they're all my own. But Jack Benny was not funny offstage. And George Burns was apparently funny from the second he woke up in the morning till the second he went to bed at night. And when they went to the country club to play poker, play cards, play canasta at Hillcrest, it was always just Burns sitting there being funny and Benny dissolved in generous laughter (laughs) because he knew what was funny. And George Burns was funny. And George Burns chose not to be funny because his routine, his bit was his look. Look at the camera. The off kilter. Yeah. The off kilter. Hey, those guys have always been bad. The last time I was home, she wasted hours sitting in front of a washing machine. Why did she do that? Well, there were two suits of long underwear inside and she thought there were wrestlers on television. (laughs) 
Mexico City, then. Oh, no, no, no. Hazel's on a vacation now. She went to one of those islands in the West Indies. Jamaica? No, I didn't make her. She wanted to go. <laughs> and then when she died, George Burns let himself loose. She died in 1964. By the 1970s, you know, in the mid-70s, George Burns became one of the biggest stars in the history of American right. comedy. But I just love that, you know, because like Shandling was clearly somebody, though he was quiet and all that, who could uncork a really funny thing. But yeah. somebody like Steve Martin, I don't think can ever say anything funny unless he's written it for three hours. Um, maybe I don't know. He, I, he, he said some funny things. I mean, I, the, the, the pairing, the, the, the friends, comedian friends are interesting. Right. And like, that's the thing with Gary, when Gary died, you discover just how many friends he had, like just how many comedian friends yeah. he had enormous. But I mean, I was thinking about um, Bob Newhart and Don Rickles are like, we're cl- very close friends. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're wives they were close. The families were close. They, they went on vacation together yeah and they two you couldn't imagine two more different people than you know this incredibly emotional loud person who was that person in real life too and then bob newhart who was the person you see on tv which is incredibly buttoned down that's that's what he was um and and, of course course, would always say that that the that um he always insisted that when they go and travel as a couple they travel abroad because if you go abroad, Rickles said, if, you, if I go abroad, everybody knows me because I was in these stupid movies and nobody <laughs> knows him. And Newhart just Newhart would have to pretend that that didn't bother him. <laughs> Rickles thought it was but, hilarious. You know, it's and the of guy course, from Kelly's Heroes. Yeah. And of course, <laughs> right, the, right. The, yeah. I mean, the great opportunistic friendship story is that the, you know, dominating the last really dominating sitcom produced in America, Seinfeld was literally born out of Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David sitting in in cafes riffing with each other. Right. I mean, that was that was it. And there were, you know, it was at some point Larry David said, maybe this can be the show. Just people sitting around a comedian sitting around a cafe talking. And that is sort of what Seinfeld became just because of their friendship. Um, you know, Seinfeld was a hugely successful comic. Right. Uh, uh, David wasn't. Uh, but Seinfeld knew he was a genius, as a lot of comedians did or understood. He just hated to perform and he didn't like putting sub, sub, subjecting himself to the whims of the audience. And this thing happened as a result that, you know, sort of changed. But, you comedy. Know, also, those that kind of level of trust. I mean, there are always those high wire moments where it could have gone horribly wrong. And everybody kind of remembers usually with a hit. But I always say that any hit TV show, especially is a mistake. Right. <laughs> that something has gone yeah. wrong that has allowed this thing to happen. Uh-huh. It's not supposed to happen. So you're saying I go into NBC and tell them I got this idea for a show about nothing. <laughs> we go into NBC. We? Since when are you a writer? What writer? We're talking about a sitcom. <laughs> you want to go with me to NBC? Yeah, I think we really got something here. What do we got? An idea. What idea? An idea for the show. I still don't know what the idea is. It's about nothing. Right. Everybody's doing something. We'll do nothing. <laughs> so we go into NBC, we tell them we got an idea for a show about nothing. Exactly. They say, what's your show about? I say nothing. There you go. I think you may have something here. 
and early in the, I think the first, after the first three, the first six, you know, they, they, they treated that show Seinfeld Chronicles, they called it like, you know, they, it came through late night. So they ordered three and they ordered three more yeah. and then maybe five more of those. It was like incredibly strung along. Um, and we all loved it. We all thought it was a great show, but, but, but the network didn't like it. And um, the story is, and this is a true story that um, uh, Larry and Jerry sat down with a president of the network then Warren Littlefield. And he had all the research there, which is not was not great for Seinfeld, but was never quite the disaster people thought it was because um, it had been on already. And he said, listen, here's the problem. There's no nobody. There's no reason to watch this show. So we believe very strongly that what you need to do is you need to get Jerry and Elaine together to get married. <laughs> Jerry and Elaine need to get yeah. married. Uh, and it's not going to be that different. They will still have that a- energy that you want. It's just that there's an emotional center to the show and you need an emotional center of the show, um, which is like actually pretty good advice when you think about it, except that applied to that show is, is a suicide pill. But of course, when and, they did that season of Seinfeld, which was about trying to make a sitcom for NBC where Bob Balaban plays right. Warren Littlefield, like, right. like literally looks like Warren Littlefield's image in a mirror. Right. And the whole thing there is that they end up with a show where um, Kramer becomes Jerry's butler. Like right. they follow the notes rather right. than but, not what, following what, the notes. And they show what the show might. But the not the following f- the yeah. notes wasn't just you, they unanimously yeah. stood up and right. said, no. Yeah. In the meeting, Larry David, because he's the hothead and had yeah. nothing to lose because he had nothing. Yeah. Stood up and said, no, this is stupid. I can't. I can't. No, 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 no. There's no yeah. way that ruins everything. Yeah. And he walked out. Yeah. And then Jerry was left alone in the meeting. And the way these things normally go, it's that they sit with Jerry and they say, listen, obviously there's a creative difference here. Um, We think you understand what we're trying to say. Why don't we approach Larry and see if there's some way we can either get him on board or separate him from the project. And instead, what happened was Seinfeld, after, I don't know, some awkward silence, or maybe the first foray into that sort of is no, you know, I, I, I came in here with Larry and I'm going to stick with Larry. And he walked out the door. And that, of course, was the Thursday night post cheers lineup yeah. for NBC worth billions of dollars. Yeah. That, of course, is what gave Larry David all the riches in the world and Seinfeld mm-hmm. all the riches in the world and Julie Louis Dreyfus all the riches in the world that that mm-hmm. created, saved a company that had was almost basically didn't exist. Mm-hmm. It did. And there we have that one decision to stand yeah. up and say, well, no, I kind of came in here with Larry to stick with Larry. There's one good story. And then we should do some more ads, but there's one good story about Judd Apatow in this, in this respect. Judd Apatow was a kid. He's out at NYU. He was like 23, 24 years old. He was not a successful standup. He was Adam Sandler's roommate. And he starts making this show with Ben Stiller, the Ben Stiller show on Fox. Great show. Great show. One year had one year, I think 13 episodes and they canceled it. So Apatow is, you know, a kid and um, the network guy gives him a bunch of notes on the first table read or the first assemblage of the footage or something like that. And he says he looks at it, he reads it and he says, I have to take a walk around the block. And he takes a walk around the block and he comes back and he says, yeah, I'm not taking any of these notes. There's not a single note here that I am going to take. Not going to take them. 
do what you have to do, right? Because I'm just not going to take them. And he was, he, it, it was so offensive to him. This guy probably, you know, who knows what the notes were, but you know, this guy is some 28 year old development exec, whoever he is. And he doesn't know anything about comedy and Apatow's a kid and Stiller's a kid and whatever. And they don't know what the hell they're doing. And, you know, and, but he's like, nah, I'm not going to do that. And they didn't fire him. But of course the show was not supported by the network and was canceled after a season. But who was on that show? Stiller, who became, you know, one of the biggest comedy stars in the world. And now, you know, and, and a director, Apatow, most important figure in film comedy in the last 20 years, probably uh, Bob Odenkirk star of right. better call Saul and, and uh, David cross, Janine David Garofalo, cross, Janine Garofalo, Andy Dick. And it won the Emmy after yeah. it got canceled. Right. 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 But yeah. I mean, it's also like you look at that and you say, this is unbelievable. And they just let it go because they didn't know what they had. And because they let it go, all of these careers were made. Like if they, you know, if they'd had to right. they'd done the show sketch for five years. Hard. Sketch yeah. comedy's hard with the audience. Right. Okay. Yeah, there's, so, you know, there's practical stuff too. Okay. So let us talk a little bit about um what? athletic greens. Athletic greens. Uh, I'll take over for this, John, as you know. Um, our next partner is a product. Athletic Greens is a product I use literally every day, and I started taking AG1, I guess they call it AG1 now, uh, mostly because I heard about it from uh, Tim Ferriss and um, and I was doing a lot of traveling and it seemed like a really good way to sort of like uh, keep up with the various, um, you know, uh, probiotic vitamin stuff, supplement stuff that I need to do and do it in an easy way. Um, and I have been doing it now. I mean, really, I mean, if I say eight years, nine years, that's probably close daily. Uh, I like the taste, doesn't taste like it's super healthy but it's not too sweet either. It has kind of a mild tropical taste and I actually look forward to it every day. So what is it? One delicious scoop of AG1. You're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and even aging, everything. Um, I actually, they say in the morning, I actually don't always do it in the morning. Um, I kind of have a my coffee regimen is too important for me, but I do it every day. And I used to do it really midday or like early afternoon. And I find it actually for me, that's what that's why it's that's when it's most effective and when I most look forward to it. Um, and it does all of the things it says it does, especially uh, digestion. The, the probiotic stuff is really, really good, but it also kind of gives you a little bit of focus for me in the middle of the day that I, that I need. It is, the, it is the one thing with the best things. Athletic Greens uses the best part of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. Contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. Still tastes great, supports better sleep, recovery, along with mental clarity and alertness. So right now, you can reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. By the way, the travel packs are great. I, that's what I use. Um, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash glop. That's athleticgreens.com slash glop uh, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. 
athletic. What greens. a great read. You Thank do you. that read. So I don't know why I'm reading the ads. I, I, you're I you're, like you're the so products. much better at it than I, I am. A, you're so much I am, better at it than I. I am an athletic greens pro, uh, uh, enthusiast. Okay. Or evangelist. Remember that time? Were you guys aware? Like there was a time in the early hypey days of the web. Um, where there are all these like web guys running around internet com- you know, companies and they're like, what, what do you do there? I'm the chief evangelist. They would always say I'm the evangelist. <laughs> yeah. That guy, that guy from the grateful dead. What was his name? John Perry Barlow. Wasn't he yeah. the chief evangelist for Microsoft or something? Something like that. He had some yeah. title like that. Yeah. He was an evangelist. I'm an evangelist. Um, we're going to change the world. Okay. So, uh, I'm going to conclude with genre stuff and my friend Jonah here and Rob can just go Oi, ugh, uh, as he goes along. Um, there have been Oi, all these ugh, trailers. Ugh. I don't know if you've been seeing them for what's coming up in the big world of gigantic franchises. So when I saw Dr. Strange, they had a trailer for Avatar 2. There is a trailer online for the new Game of Thrones series, which is called, I don't know, something House of the Dragon, Home of the Dragon dragon of the home and then there's a some kind of trailer teaser thing for this lord of the rings show Mm -hmm. which is called the something of power and of course the lord of the Rings show has literally nothing to do with the lord of the ring it's just character names from the lord of the rings they just bought the they spent 250 million dollars buying the words lord of the rings and then had to invent a story to fit it because it's not any of the stories from from the book and um, they all look bad. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, I mean, I, I was particularly struck, not that I liked Avatar because I didn't, but I was particularly struck. And you shouldn't bet against James Cameron. He's never had a flop. You know, he's, you know, he made three of the biggest movies of all time, one in, one after another after another. And he's obviously a commercial genius and I should keep my mouth shut. But man, that looked bad. Avatar 2. Like it, it looked like a bad cartoon uh you know whatever the magic is of the motion capture when the in the volume with the with the 3d was not not present did you see any of these did you like any of them are you excited about anything i was not horrified by the game of thrones one um the lord of the rings one elicited great skepticism and i have not seen the avatar one i do want to um point out something um an avid listener of glop and also other Ricochet podcasts mm-hmm. emailed me with the subject header, uh, something along the lines of Rob Long busted. And I was hmm. really kind of hoping it had something to do with like finding yeah. so, too much. Yeah, LSD in exactly. your car or, what could possibly be too much? Microdose. Um, it apparently was that on the Ricochet podcast, you did some sort of extended metaphor about the red wedding. And about right. Game of Thrones. Yes. And and he was I, my impression was that you would watch through the Red Wedding like and then gave up. But maybe not. Either way, he says that Rob Long's sort of I don't want to talk about I don't care about I never watch Game of Thrones thing was well, revealed to be false. So I, I think that's not true. I, I, I say that's not true. That's very bad detective work. I can honestly say I did. I have not seen the Red Wedding episode. Uh-huh. Um, I just know that's the episode in which there's just just carnage, carnage for on 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 screen for like half an hour, that everybody just dies and it's crazy, uh, and so I, I and I don't think I'm alone in this. I have used it 
they don't have to see the episode to use the red wedding to describe, you know, what might happen to certain Democrats or the Democratic yeah. Party. Uh, November. I'm just putting it out there. I mean, you, you're maintaining when, this position. Yeah, but you know what? Lying, when, but it's OK. When we finish here today and we we end this and the recording stops, Rob is going to sing the reigns of Castamere. That that's my <laughs> prediction. Is that, is that a he Star will Trek? be singing the reigns of Castamere? Speaking of Star Trek. Speaking of Star yes. Trek. Oh, geez. What a disaster Picard is. Picard. I love Patrick Stewart. I had such emotional. I said such hopes for this. It was one of the worst seasons of science fiction television I have ever seen. Violated every rule of time travel, violated every sensible woke beyond belief in a way that completely ruined all the storytelling. Uh, so I agree with you entirely. I think the third season, Picard, the first season of Picard was pretty good. It was and okay. Like, yeah. And it's kind of charming. Yeah. Second season, eh. third yeah. season it was hot garbage. And I'm particularly pissed off because there's this guy, I can't remember his name. Um, who's who bills himself as the longest working political cartoonist in America. He's a blue check guy for some Midwestern newspaper. And I, I tweeted that I thought the writing on this was absolutely horrible. And he immediately goes on this riff, sucking up to who's the famous writer who's Michael like Chabon. The, Michael Chabon right. is, so the, this is, is one of the whole sucking up thing about how brilliant they are and how wonderful it is. And obviously, I don't like it because I don't like the pointed political messaging about how it's anti-fascist and anti-Trump and that I, I don't like the message of being opposed to bigotry. And I'm like so enraged by this because like I am a Star Trek nerd and it's the it's the temporal prime directive stuff and having all of this garbage treacly nonsense yeah. that makes no sense with the continuity that bothered me. The, I mean, the woke stuff was annoying, but like the original Star Trek had the equivalent of woke stuff. Um, Certainly the next generation had 80s woke, right? It was for 80s sure, woke. for sure. And I have to say Star Trek Discovery is vastly woke yeah, than Picard. Yeah, right. Meanwhile, anyway, Rob, I'm sorry, but I the just, new, I just was, can I just join in? I would just say that earlier. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I as you know, I have not watched these shows. Right. Mm -hmm. But my understanding of the, the when the the next generation came out was that part of what they were suggesting was that the Federation. Had <laughs> <laughs> I, we, we set him up. He gets it. He gets the he snore. Gets, that's fine. I, it's well, a, it was a, it was a great <laughs> snore anyway. So but, no, but the, but the, yeah. the point you're I thought you're going to make, which is an actually an interesting point to make. And whether you agree with it or care about it or not, is one of the problems with the first couple seasons of Next Generation was that they were essentially embarrassed by the original Star Trek wagon train in space, JFK, New Frontier, Liberal America, internationalism, is, America is democracy awesome. to 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 primitives. And right. And so they, they flipped the they flipped the script on everything. Yeah. And so instead of the communist style uh, Klingons or or Romulans being the enemies, they essentially made space Jews hook nose space Jews right. into the enemies in the form of the Ferengi and the it Ferengi, was not the Ferengi. subtle. Yes, so not anyway, and they made uh, uh, they made yeah. instead of having William Shatner, you know, a John, you know, a James T. Kirk from Iowa, kind of like all American guy. Yeah. They had this effete guy who's diplomacy first French dude who like talks longingly about the old days of the European hegemony. 
and it was garbagey. And they had to like it took them about two years to realize sort of like don't make woke criteria for food, you know, ratings. <laughs> this is not what the friggin' audience wants. Yeah, and they so started they moved bringing on, in right. like good fights but of course, and yeah. wars and stuff. But uh, of course, did we, so we, our office used to be on Paramount was uh, the Lucille Ball building, the first floor. And we were writing cheers. So our office was there. The writer's room was there. And uh, it was an old building. And we, we had the windows open all the time. And it was just down the road. They were they'd shoot the next generation. And so you'd see like an old like old movie lot. You'd see people in costume walking by back and forth. And a couple of the writers on staff that I would rather show with were huge Star Trek fans. Just insane. So one day there was a guy dressed as a Ferengi. Just kind of sitting outside, you know, in the in the what we call Lucy Park, which is a little park area, uh, drinking a Snapple. And we went out and we gave him like 10 bucks. And would you just finish your Snapple in the writer's room? Just come and <laughs> sit in the writer's room, which he did. And um, and and we did it. But before the two guys who love Star Trek came back from the stage. And so we're all sort of talking at the writer's room. They come in and they see the Ferengi there. And they're like. Guys, you know, there's a Ferengi in the room, right? And then we all say, we don't see anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of them said that one of the fans said, well, I, I don't know why he'd be here. There's no profit for him here. <laughs> which, uh, which, <laughs> I don't know about Ferengis. Some but, of the great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Some of the great archival photos in Hollywood history, of course, are like there's a photo on the set yeah. of, of Planet of the Apes of like Morris Evans and Kim Hunter, who were, you know, Dr. Zayas and whoever smoking cigarettes right. <laughs> while they <laughs> were in monkey, Pepper, while they're in their full Pepper, monkey right. makeup. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, absolutely. Well, we did so that the, the and the couple of the producers of, of, of Star Trek were fan, Cheers fans. So when Cheers was over, well, maybe someone went over like one of the year they um, they came. And they said, hey, is it OK if we could we just be extras at the bar? And we're like, sure, absolutely. And then the guys who were a Star Trek fan said, well, wait, can we be extras yeah. <laughs> on Star Trek? And they're like, yeah, sure, if you want. And so they took the fucking day, freaking day off, which pissed us <laughs> off, right? And they go, they go to hair and makeup, and they're in the thing, and they're in the unitard. And basically what it is, they, they're beamed down. They're just crew members beaming down to a planet. And then something happens, and they're beamed back up, and they, they limp past Picard. And so they'd shoot this a couple of times and a third time they shoot it. And then my then writing partner uh, turns to his, the, our friend who's also the other producer who's a, it says what I want to do though for the last take is I, as I'm limping past Picard, my arm, you know, it's like he's in a sling and they've just been brooded, uh, battered around. He wants to like, as he, and Picard, by the way, is staring impassively as they walk by, he wanted to turn and stop and say, uh, Oh, I'm fine. Thank you for asking. <laughs> And they laughed about it. And uh, then and then uh, the other producer said, I will give you a thousand dollars to do that. <laughs> so well, I can't. I'm not going to do it. I don't want to disrupt the production. And apparently it got up to the offers like 10. I'll give you ten thousand dollars to for the last take to turn to, um, you know, what's his name? Patrick John Stewart. Picard, Patrick, Patrick Stewart, Stewart. say. I'm fine. Thanks for asking, which is kind of probably what every crew member always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he did not do it. But I just thought, boy, it would have been a much better show. They, they left that in. They should have left it in. Yeah, they should have left it in. And we got to go. They should have left it in. We got to go. So I right. oh, well, so just one thing. Strange new brave, strange new worlds. The Pit, Christopher Pike prequel to like Star Trek stuff. 
which is also on Paramount, is actually pretty good. And the most loyal thing to like the original spirit of Star Trek that they've put out in a long time. Okay. Well, maybe we can talk a little about that next time and give Rob some more snoring time. So, (laughs) gentlemen, that a while. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Wait, Scott Immergut is telling me we have one more spot. So I will read this one more spot ladder and then we got to go. Okay, here's the spot. With the rising cost of living, piling student debt and the inordinate cost of buying a house, living on autopilot can leave your kids or partner with a huge financial burden. On that note, it makes sense why people get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. Why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, choose Ladder. Ladder is 100% digital, no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. When you apply for $3 million in coverage or less, just to answer a few questions about your health in an application, you just need a few minutes on a phone or a laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out if you're instantly approved. There are no hidden fees. You can cancel any time and get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long-proven histories of paying claims. They're rated A and A-plus by AM Best. Ladder's customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot. They made Forbes' best life insurance 2021 list. Finally, since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash glop today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R-L-I-F-E dot com slash glop. Ladderlife.com slash glop. And we thank Ladder for sponsoring the glop podcast. So just so we don't end on this note, I'm just going to tell everybody right now, do not go see Downton Abbey, A New Era, a terrible, terrible, terrible movie that I swear my hand to God has a plot point and a plot line stolen from Singing in the Rain. And how that happens, I can't even begin to tell you, but it's about dubbing and the coming of talkies and how they shoehorned that in to Downton Abbey is a wonder uh, of the of the ages. Don't see Downton Abbey, a new era. I think even though that's I think it's true about Downton Abbey in general. Nothing First was, season of Downton Abbey was one of the best things ever on television. And then after that, it just cratered in my view that that's, that's, that's where I, I couldn't do that. It was a giant snooze fest. Okay. Well, you, as, as you do most things. So, uh, Joni, you have anything to recommend? Um, I love the latest season of Barry. And I keep thinking about Rob once made this point on here um, about how the key to a successful sitcom is having one character. It doesn't even have to be the main character who talks really funny that causes you to stop and listen to them. And the, the, the Chechen gangster guy is such a brilliant, like, you know, brilliant accent, weird way of talking kind of thing that I always think about Rob's theory about you just need one of those characters there. Cause just one it's, it's almost that's an amazing alphabet. story. Cause that guy, Anthony Corrigan was this really good looking young guy. And then he got alopecia, lost all his hair yeah. thought his career was over. And then he recast himself as this character actor yeah this bald character actor and t- just has this breakthrough part as the Chechen oh. gangster. He's well, I, amazing. I look forward to seeing him on GI Jane too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Pow! <laughs> Take Anthony Corgan's name out of your effing mouth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rob, you have anything to recommend? Um, I don't, I, I thought I did, but I know I can't remember what it was. Um, no, I get nothing. Okay. Oh, well, think about it. Come back with two next time. So, and we will Got be it. back to you in a couple of weeks. Eater.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.